You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. That is the series of messages that we are in, All Systems Go. You know, it wasn't as exciting this service without the two charismatic little dancers in the front. I know, the pastor's kids on the front row. They're in time out, aren't they? No, that we're, we, don't, we, don't, we don't punish them for worship. Oh, <laughs> that's great. You had to have been at the first service to understand that. It was just cute. Well, I had an incredible week in San Antonio this weekend for the debut of the Fearless Series of Women uh, for Women. We went live with the website uh, internationally on Tuesday, just in time to go to San Antonio and exhibit the Fearless Series. I was there for the uh, Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit. These are Christian ministries all over the nation that come together every year for this particular summit to sharpen their skills. And these, all of these uh, leaders and ministries minister specifically in the area of sexual brokenness among God's people, uh, pornography issues, those kinds of things. And so the Fearless Series for Women, which is about the sexual abuse of women, uh, is, uh, I was exhibiting it there. And I'm telling you, I was overwhelmed with the response. These professionals that are doing this work all over the country said, James, there is nothing like this out there. And I said, I know there's not. That's why I created it. I'm not interested in recreating the wheel. And they said, this has been the missing piece of the puzzle, something to help us to give women a safe tool to begin the conversation about their sexual abuse that they've experienced. And most of them, many of them have never told anyone. And it was really encouraging. It was affirming that the last three years of my life have not been wasted in developing, producing, and directing, and getting this thing ready to go. Um, and I was also amazed at how many of them knew about City on the Hill. They said, this is City on the Hill in Fort Worth, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. I said, I've heard of that church. You're the hospital church, aren't you? And, and I went, yeah. And in fact, I was amazed at how many of them have actually been here on a Sunday morning. They might be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for a conference, and they're going to go to church on Sunday morning. And so they come over here. They never introduce themselves. They just come and check us out. And they said, yeah, I was in your church three or four years ago on a Sunday morning. And, and I met also someone I've met before, a physician and his wife, who live about two and a half to three hours away from here. Uh, when he got caught in his pornography and his sexual addiction, there was no place in their area that they could get help, and they went online and they began looking for a church that could help them. These are, they're Christians and believers, and he's a physician in his community, and they drove the two and a half to three hours here to come on Sunday morning. And right after the service is over, they came and, and told me about their story, and, uh, and we helped them. And when he came to my booth, uh, I didn't recognize him, and he says, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, well, no, help me out. And he started telling a story. I said, you're a doctor, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, I remember that. Now let me tell you what's happened in their lives since then. When he came, he and his wife here, they were broken at that time. And I turned them over to Brian Duncan. Brian got them connected with Pure Desire Ministry out of, uh, out of Oregon, uh, which specializes in, 
and sexual addiction, helping men. They got them connected to a group, Pure Desire Group. He's gone through the seven pillars of Pure Desire. He has been leading Pure Desire Groups now for the last two years in the community. The church is still not open. The churches in that area are still not open to this ministry, but he's, they're just taking it on their own. And he just, his, he and his wife, I just, I, you know, he said, we want to thank you so much for being a place that we could get help. You know, that's a great story, but there's, there's an element of me that's very sad when I hear you tell that story because of the first line where he said, there was nowhere else right. where we could go get help. It's like, we're, the church, we're going we're gonna to fight sin and we're going to storm the gates of hell. Well, I got a pornography problem. We can't help you with that. Can't help you with that. And, and there was no help. And, you know, these are, he, it, he's a physician. He's a well-respected man in the community, but his community and there's no church that was a safe place for them to get help. And they found us and uh, came, and Brian was able to connect them with Pure Desire. And so they came to the workshop because his wife now is a life coach. She's now a life coach, and so he went with her because she was coming there for training. So it was just it was phenomenal. And, and I know many of you are new, and you've never seen the trailer to the Fearless series. So I'm gonna, we're going to show it right quick. And uh, it's not running right now, is it? No, okay. Uh, and uh, just, let's just celebrate what God has done through this and is going to do. sexual abuse, a topic that is not nearly spoken of enough in the church, and perhaps it's because within Christendom we don't realize exactly how prevalent this is. There's a lack of understanding of how deep those wounds go. I was searching to fill that emptiness and that void. It injures the soul. Sexual abuse is a form of an adverse, toxic event in a child's life. We're foolish to think that this is a marginal issue. Women in the church don't talk about it. People don't feel safe to open up. They feel and or believe that church is for the pretty people. The church is, in fact, for the brokenhearted. Some of you watching this have never told anyone. This is an arduous road. It's hard. Healing costs you something, and it is so absolutely worth it. We have to stop suffering in silence. If we don't talk about it in a church, people will remain broken. Look at the experience of sexual abuse like a cancer of the soul. It has to be addressed. of it. That was at my exhibit table for three solid days. That was on a loop on my screen and it played over and over and over and I never get tired of hearing that. I never get tired of that music. I'm so proud of what God has done through it and what He's going to do. We can, we can stream from our website anywhere in the world 24 hours a day. 
for people who want to do the Fearless Series for Women. So, this morning we're involved in this series that we are doing a systematic study of theology. Systematic theology. We're going through the major doctrines of the faith and we're looking at what the Scripture teaches about these things. We're finding out, in other words, what it is that we believe. We talked about the doctrine of God. We talked about the Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. Last week, we talked about pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This morning, theologically, this is called the ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. The topic about the church is one of the most confusion, where there is so much confusion around the church. What is the church? What does the church do? Where is the church? So we're going to spend probably two, maybe three weeks on this particular one in order to see, make sure that we can, can cover it. Because you see, there's great confusion in people's minds about the church. What does the Bible say about the church? And I'm reminded back in the day, some of you perhaps remember this, when you would check into the hospital, you had to fill out a form and they would always ask you what your church preference was. How many of you remember the church preference on the form? Because they wanted a, 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 a clergy member well, or what, somebody. What kind of hospital are we talking about? Well, personally? all the hospitals back in my day. Now, you probably weren't even alive then, but back in the day, they would, they would ask you, well, what's your church preference? And I remember hearing the story of the guy that, you know, didn't go to church and, and he saw that question and didn't know what to do. And so he put red brick. <laughs> I mean, that's the idea that so many people have about the church, that it's a building, that somehow that is, a, that is the church. So we're going to dig into this thing, and there's a statement I'm going to give you that I want to form the backdrop for this series, this part of the series, when we're talking about the church for the next few weeks. And I've heard it for 40 years from people, and we're going to examine everything we're going to talk about the church in the backdrop of this statement. And... At the end, we're going to conclude, does this statement make sense? Can a Christian really make this statement in truth? And here it is. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the church. Mm. How many of you have heard people say that? I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, but I don't believe in the church. Sometimes it counts this way. I love Jesus, but I refuse to be associated with the church. Right. Now, we're going to examine that statement in the light of what the Scripture says about the church and see if that's a valid statement that someone can actually make. So holy. It's so, yeah, it's it is, so holy. It's a, it's a virtue signal yeah. that I'm better than all those hypocrites down there at that church, and so I love Jesus, I don't but associate I don't, to, I don't associate them. with those hypocrites. No. That's exactly right. So we just say, come join us. There's room for one that's more. Right. Let's talk for a moment about the meaning of the church. The word in Greek, which is the Greek text in which the New Testament was written, we have to translate into English, is the Greek word is ekklesia, which is a compound word, as many Greek words were. It's a compound of the Greek preposition ek, which means out of, and the Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. So literally, the word that we translate ekklesia into church literally means the called out ones. So the church means those who are called out. And typically it means those who are called out to the one who summons them. Summons them. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Are you speaking in tongues? Right I now? am speaking in tongues. That was who a joke. summonses them out. Now, let's look at this from three perspectives, and then I'm going to turn it over for Derek to bring us into the airport for our section this morning. First of all, the church 
is made up of the called. Ecclesia kaleo, to call, okay? Now, last week, we covered this in depth, so I'm not going to go uh, in depth in here, but what we said last week is, it is the Father who calls us and then the Spirit that convinces us to answer that call. So the Father calls and the Spirit does that convincing work. Jesus said it this way, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I call them by name. In another place, Jesus said, and all the Father give me, I will not lose any of them. They will all come to me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 29, we love this verse because it talks about how God can even take the messes of our life and can bring good about them. And the verse is about that, but it's about so much more than that. Let me take you deeper than that. He says, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Okay, to who? Not for everyone, but for who? To those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now listen to this. He goes on the next verse, drives it deeper. For those whom He foreknew... He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, what did He do? He called them. And those whom He calls, He justifies. And those whom He justifies, He glorifies. So it's not, who is it that God does this sovereign work of turning our messes into glory? Those whom He has called unto Himself. Ephesians 4.1 says, reminds us that we are called by God to freedom. So understand that the church is made up of those who are called, called by God. Second of all, we are called out. So not only are we called by God, but we are called out, which is literally the meaning of the word ecclesia. You go, well, what are we called out of? Well, the New Testament says there's a bunch of things that we're called out of. We're called out of the world into the kingdom. We're called out of death into life in Christ. We're called out of bondage to the Old Testament law and its curse into the freedom of grace. So I could go on and on and on. We're called by God, and yet we are called out by God. Now, when you call somebody out, that's not usually a good thing, is it? We don't use it that way today. But when God calls us out, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. He's calling us out of something that is horrible, and He's calling us into His kingdom. So for the rest of my time here, let me dig deeper and go into another aspect of this. So we're called by God. We're called out by God. And get this, we are called as God's plan B. <laughs> now, Derek and I talked about this this week, and we thought, is that her heresy to say that? Well, not if I explain what I mean by that. So before some of you start throwing rocks at me to stone me for heresy, let me explain what I mean. Let me quickly give you this disclaimer that when I say we are God's plan B, I'm not speaking about from God's perspective, okay? We are a part of God's sovereign plan. It didn't surprise Him. We have been His plan from the beginning. But when you look at the visible timeline of Scripture, it looks as if we are God's plan B and that God's plan A was Israel, Okay, God's plan A was the Hebrew people that came from Abraham. And then when that plan failed, God said, then we're going to go to plan B, and that's going to be church, the church. Now, from our perspective, it looks that way. But from God's sovereign perspective, it was his plan all along. And when I say from the timeline of Scripture, I'm saying that in the Old Testament, the church does not appear. The church is not there. And so today, if you and I were to go to an Orthodox Jew 
someone who is still looking for the coming of the Messiah, who believes the Torah, the, the, the law, the books of Moses, and studies them and prays for the coming of, of the Messiah, the Savior. If you went to an Orthodox Jew and you told him that Israel had been pl- replaced by the church as God's chosen people, he would perhaps respond and say, well, show me. But you have to show me from the Old Testament because it's the only scripture I believe is real. You can't use your New Testament. I don't buy that. Show me from the Old Testament how the church has now replaced Israel as the chosen of God. Well, you would be stumped because the church doesn't appear in the Old Testament. Now, you could take the Old Testament and talk about the prophecies of the Messiah that was promised by the prophets and you can talk about how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and all of that, but when you, you could not take the Old Testament and prove to him that the church, the Christian church, was a part of the sovereign plan of, law, of God. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, you will discover that the very idea of anyone who was not Jewish, Hebrew, of Israel having fellowship with Yahweh, with the true and the living God, that anyone having fellowship with him who was not a Jew is not there. The only ones who could know the true and living God in the Old Testament were Jews, Hebrews. And even when a Gentile like Rahab would come into the faith, she had to do for what first? had to become a Jew first in order to be a part of the covenants and the promises of God. So when people came to, Christ, came to Yahweh who were not born Hebrew in the Old Testament, they had to become a Jew in order to be brought in. You know what that means, right? That, that's got bad... Snip, snip. Snip, snip, guys. I'm telling you, this is called sledgehammer circumcision at age 40. If you come to Christ... I mean, you know, we, you know, the Hebrews always did it on the eighth day, right? Since God is Spanish. Y'all, hey, y'all, get, y'all get nervous about baptism. Yeah, like, yeah. Come well, on, man. Baptism is a cakewalk is compared nothing. to getting circumcised when you're 40 years old. I mean, come on, give me a break. But that's what they had to do. A Gentile could not claim the covenants and the promises of God until they became a Jew. But today, what we're doing is we're talking about the church. We're talking about ecclesiology. So how did the church come to be? We don't have to guess. Jesus himself tells us. We're going to look at Jesus' explanation. And this explanation is one that Jesus gave to the Jews. He was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. And Jesus is telling them how the church has come to be. Now, in Matthew 21, turn in your Bibles or your electronic device... To Matthew chapter 21. And in Matthew 21, Jesus is telling parables. Jesus' parables were about the kingdom of God. Jesus would use parabolic stories to illustrate aspects of what God's kingdom is like. And so he's giving some kingdom parables in Matthew 21. It's very close to the time Jesus is about to be arrested and he's about to be crucified. So he's really talking about the kingdom of God. We pick up the story in verse 33 with this parable. Now there's a cast of characters, and so let's walk through who are the characters in this parable. First of all, there's a landowner. Jesus said there was a landowner who owned a a vineyard. Okay, as we go through the parable, you're going to become aware that the landowner is God. He is the owner of the vineyard. And then there is that vineyard that that the, the landowner owns. 
The vineyard itself is a character in the parable, even though it's an inanimate object. It is a character because the vineyard represents the kingdom of God. Mm. So God, the vineyard owner, owns the vineyard, the kingdom of God. Then the third characters are the vine growers. Jesus said that this owner rented out the vineyard to some vine growers so that they would tend it, they would make it productive, that they would produce fruit. Who are the vine growers? The vine growers are Israel, to whom the kingdom of God was entrusted in the old covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, Israel was given the kingdom of God, and they were put in in charge of and in trust to the kingdom of God, that they were to go and be a blessing to the nations and that they were bear fruit in the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Okay, the harvest time comes along. And it was not untypical that an owner would rent out land, not for money, but for a percentage of the harvest. And so it's time for the harvest. And so the owner says, now it's time for me to collect the fruit that these vine growers are supposed to have uh, harvested for me. So to collect his harvest, he sends the fourth character, he sends some servants. He says that the, the owner sent servants to the vine growers to collect the harvest. But the vine growers killed the master's servants. Who are the servants? They are the prophets of God. That God sent to Israel all through the Old Testament to warn them, come back, that you are to be a blessing to the nations, that you are to bear fruit for the, for the owner of the vineyard. But when the prophets came to Israel, they told the truth of God and the, the people killed them. They killed the prophets. They're still killing the prophets today. People don't like to hear the truth. So if a prophet stands and speaks truth, then the first response is, well, I don't like your truth, so I'm going to kill you. They literally killed the prophets in the Old Testament. So Jesus is setting the story up. There's God. There's the kingdom of God, the vineyard. There's, the, there's the, 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 the renters. That's Israel. They're supposed to produce fruit. They don't. So when it comes fruit time, he sends his servants, the prophets, and they kill, their, they kill the prophets. And then he sent another group of his servants, and they kill them. And then the owner of the vineyard says, I'll send my son. If I send my son, surely they will respect him. And he sent his son, and what did they do to the son? They killed him. Jesus is speaking of himself. This mm. is the Messiah, mm. the Christ, who was sent to Israel, that was promised to Israel by the prophets. And when he came, they rejected him and they crucified him. Then in verse 40, Jesus asked a question. Jesus often did this, this question asking, this poignant question at the end of a story. So he asked these scribes and Pharisees that he's talking to, he says, now when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to these vine growers? You can imagine they're getting hot under the collar that these vine growers have done such a horrible thing. And so Jesus has told this story to get to this question because their answer is going to condemn them. He set them up. So verse 41, they answered, well, when he comes, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. And I can almost hear Jesus saying, Bingo! You get the prize. Thank you for playing. 
You see, Israel had been entrusted with the kingdom of God, with the vineyard, but they were irresponsible with that. They bore no fruit. They killed the prophets. They even killed the, the son of, the, of God, the, the owner of the vineyard. And so then Jesus has set them up. He lowers the boom, and He tells them the bad news. He switches from an agricultural metaphor to a building metaphor, and that's not unusual. When the metaphor has run its limits, then you switch to another metaphor to carry it to its conclusion. And in this switching to this metaphor, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, out of their scriptures. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. He's talking about himself. The stone that they rejected. And then he carries on. Therefore, because you rejected the Son, the Christ, the Messiah, now the metaphor is a stone, a cornerstone of a building. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, what is this? Jesus has switched metaphors now to talk about the kingdom being taken away from them and another thing happening. He said, you rejected the stone. Now, it has become a chief cornerstone, the foundation stone of another building, which is the church. Jesus said, I will build my what? I will build my church. Other places in 1 Peter, this imagery is used. Psalm 9, uh, whatever that is, is, is quoted where it says, He is the chief cornerstone now that the builders had rejected. Now, I want you to focus on something. Jesus said it's going to be given to people. A people. The Greek word here is ethnos, which means people, a nation, Gentiles, pagans. The ethnos were the nations apart from Israel. They were the heathens. They were the non-Jews whom a Jew referred to any non-Jew as a dog, as refuse, that God only created Gentiles so to stoke the fires of hell. That's all Gentiles are good for. Yet Jesus says to the chosen people of God of the old covenant, you have not been responsible with what God has entrusted you, his vineyard. He's taking the kingdom of God away from you, and he is giving to the kingdom of God to a new, to a people. He's going to become the chief cornerstone of this new building that is going to be raised up. That's where we come from. Now, Ephesians 2.12 says, Paul says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. The Messiah. Christ is the technical term for the Messiah. Alienate from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, now in the Son, now in the chief cornerstone, you who were once far off from God have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So who are we? Who are we? Folks, we are the ragtags. We are the rejects. We are what, we got Jesus because Israel didn't want him. Get that. You know, we're thinking, oh man, we are called of God. We are so freaking special. No, we're not. We were the rejects. We were the plan B. Because Israel, the plan A, from our perspective, not from God's, but from our perspective, 
We only got into the kingdom because those to whom it was entrusted were not good stewards of it. Mm. Now, I'm trying to get you to understand, you were chosen of God and called out by God, and it had nothing to do with how cool you were, or how good you were, or how holy you were. No, we were the refuse, the cast-asides. Well, God, God chose me because I'm precious, I thought. Yeah, He did, He did. You're, you're the only one, though. That's right. But you'll grow out of that yeah, after about 20 years in ministry. <laughs> You know, people love to trace their genealogy. Come on, be honest. How many of you have traced your genealogy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know why you do that? Hoping to find something good. Mm -hmm. I've never done that because I know what I'm going to find. It's not a family tree. It's a family weed. That's right. I don't have a family tree. I have a family weed. I mean, there's people in my ancestry that I don't even want to know about. Nope. But we do it because we are hoping, oh, we're going to find a statesman. We're going to find some great hero of history or, right. or whatever. You know, if that's as far as you go back in tracing your ancestry, you hadn't gone far enough. If you keep going in your ancestry, do you know what you're going to find? You're going to find horror. If, for instance, if you are of African descent, you go back far enough, you're going to find idolatry in your ancestors. You're going to find the worship of demonic spirits in your ancestors. If you're of Indo-European descent, such as me, white skin, most of us here, white skin, you can trace your ancestry, if you go back far enough, back to the Germanic tribes that were so barbaric, they killed and ate their enemies. That's your ancestors. Welcome to City on a Hill. <laughs> That's who we are. All of us who are not of Jewish descent, of Israeli descent, of Hebrew descent, we are of the nations. We're the, the refuse. We're the dogs. Jesus didn't come to your ancestors and mine. He came to Israel. And Israel rejected him. And he said, then I'm going to give it to the dogs. I'm going to give the kingdom of God to the rejects. And I'll say it again. We got... Jesus, because Israel didn't want him. Now, in the very next chapter, Matthew 22, I'll do this real quick. Jesus told another parable. It's the parable of the wedding feast. I love this parable because the, the bridegroom, who in this story is obviously Jesus, he's getting married to his bride, and he's going to invite these guests, and they're all going to come, and it's going to be a great party. But none of the guests wanted to come. They all made up excuses for why they couldn't be there, and so there weren't going to be any guests at the party. Those were Israel the ones who were originally invited. So Jesus said to his servants, the bridegroom said, you know what, go out into the ditches, go out into the highways, go out into the byways and bring anyone that will come. I don't care what their ancestry is. I don't care who they are. Bring them in because they're going to be invited to the feast. That's how we got in. Because the original invitees didn't want to come. And we were the ones that were out there on the highways and the byways. Folks, we were the ones in the ditch. We're all sons of ditches. <laughs> sons and daughters of ditches, by the way. If you remember the Good Samaritan message I preached a number of years ago, we were the guy in the ditch. Ditch Somebody, people. Ditch people, that's right. And we're all sons and daughters of ditches. Yet, Jesus has entrusted the kingdom of God to, to the church. What? 
<laughs> oh, I just, what, I, just I, I just love you, brother. Oh, that's okay, all. Okay, thank you. That's all. You're wanting me to stop because you're no, afraid of what I'm going to no, say. No, keep I on. I do have a filter, Preach and it on. works every now and then. So here we are. That's the meaning of the church. That's us. So don't be thinking you're something special because you're called of God. The called out. We're called out of the ditch is what we're called out of. That's right. We had no heritage. We had no hope. Separated from the covenants and the promises of God. And when those to whom the covenants were given rejected the responsibility for the kingdom of God, Jesus said, then the door is open to the refuse. Come in. That's the church. That's us. You can look at this crowd and you go, that's a pretty good description. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's fair. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look at you. Not many of you were wise. (laughs) Not many of you were great. He's just being honest. God has chosen the foolish things of the world (laughs) to confound the wise. Take us on. Let's talk about the expression of the church. How is is the church expressed? I'm going to try. You're a good man. I'm going to try. How is the church expressed in the New Testament? The... uh, the word ecclesia, as James said, the called out ones, but it's confusing because it seems different depending on the passage that you're reading. Sometimes it seems like the church is a reference to something a little more generalized, a little more broad reaching. Other times it seems very specific, like an, like an individual gathering. For example, in Matthew 16, 18, James has quoted it a couple times. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says that, you get the feeling he's not talking about First Baptist Bethlehem, right? <laughs> you, you have this feeling there's something bigger going yeah. on there. But then two chapters later, Jesus talks about when a brother's caught in sin. You go to that brother one-on-one, then you go two-on-one, and eventually, if nothing works, he says, tell it to the church. You don't get the idea he's saying, tell it to every single Christian on earth. <laughs> It seems very specific, like an individual gathering of believers. Paul does the same thing. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. he talks about when you're coming together as a church. It seems like a very specific individual gathering. The very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on. You get the feeling he's, he's speaking more generally here. So it's confusing, isn't it? When you're reading your Bible and you see the word church, Sometimes it seems like it's one thing, sometimes it seems like another. It's confusing until you understand that the church is expressed in two very different ways. Mm -hmm. The universal church and the local church. The universal church is the broad and generalized expression of the church. The local church is the more specific gathering, like City on a Hill. We're a local church. And so I want to break these down and talk about each of them, because the Scripture has something to say about each of them. And I want to begin with the, the least emphasized of the two. And which do you think that is, by the way? Which is least emphasized in the New, the New Testament? It's actually the universal, yeah, the universal church. We'll begin there. It's not a huge emphasis in the New Testament. Uh, The majority of the New Testament is written, uh, the majority of it is is letters by the Apostle Paul to specific churches, and they all have a very specific purpose except for one. There is one letter that he writes that seems to be less local and more universal. Anyone want to take a guess at which one it is? 
It's Ephesians, Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. And there are a few reasons why we think that that Paul is speaking more about the universal church than the local. For number one, it it was uniquely written. It doesn't read like the rest of Paul's letters. It reads almost more like a sermon. It doesn't contain standard literary elements of the ancient world. It's it's a very unique letter. Number two, it doesn't reference any local issues. He never addresses anyone by name. He never addresses any specific circumstances that have arisen there in Ephesus. And number three, some of the earliest manuscripts don't include the phrase in Ephesus. So Paul talks about being in Ephesus. That's how we get the letter. That's how we know that it was written to the Ephesian church. But actually, some of the earlier manuscripts, not all of them, but some of them don't even include that, which means that likely what was going on is Paul wrote that letter, sent it to the church in Ephesus for them to read to the congregation, and then after they were done, they were to send it off to other churches to be read as well. There are about 240 Christian communities in so that this would have area. been like... Paul sends the letter to Ephesus. Now, on your email, send it to your entire contact list. Yeah, forward it. Yeah, forward, forward it on. on. Okay, forward it on. Exactly like that. There are about 240 communities there in Ephesus, which is, by the way, modern modern day Turkey. And uh, most of those communities were communities established through the Pauline church. I've actually been there twice. Yeah. I've walked through the ruins of the ancient city of Ephesus, in, which is now in Turkey. It was yep. in Greece yeah. back then. Yeah. Now it's part of Turkey. I rode a camel. Actually. That's, that's, I mean, do you even go to Ephesus without riding a camel? You have to know. ride a camel. I, I think it's in the rule book. They're kind of um, nasty critters. They spit on you and they stink. They are. So what is... What is Paul addressing when he talks about the universal church? He's developing some theological commitments that are true not just for the church in Ephesus, but they're true for every gathering, for every believer. So let me give you some aspects of the universal church. Number one, the universal church is being built by Jesus himself. By Jesus himself. Matthew 16, we've quoted it a few times now, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, watch this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, See, right there it is. Peter was the first pope. Peter was the first pope. Yeah. The Catholics got it. That's not, not true at all. No. So we don't have time to really dive into the wordplay here. But Jesus is using wordplay. Peter's name in Greek, Petros in the masculine form, rock, Petra in the neuter form. One means small rock. One means like a boulder. The boulder here is not Peter. Peter is a ditch person. He's a Jew, but he's, he's a he's, he's a, a reject. Pebble. He's a pebble. Yeah, he's a he, these guys are the rejects of the of the Jewish world. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to build my church on your confession that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. But a, again, what does this passage say? Who is building the universal church? Jesus is. It's, come on, this is the Sunday school answer. You can just <laughs> throw it out there. Say Jesus. You can't be wrong. You're going to be right most of the time. So. The next question then is, okay, if Jesus is building this church, where is it? Where is this church located? Number two, it is located in heaven. Uh In heaven. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in joyful gathering. He's talking about the heavenly gathering here. 
And he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I want you to gather or catch that last verse there, verse 23. Assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What does assembly he mean? Assembly is that? ecclesia. It is. It's the called out. Assembly is the word ecclesia. He's the saying church of the firstborn. To the church of the firstborn. So that brings up the next question. What in the world does church of the firstborn mean? Well, we got to think back biblically about the rest of the New Testament. Where else have we seen this firstborn language and who was it applied to? Yes, there it is. See, I told you, you you can almost always count on it. Colossians 1.15, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in our sermon on Christology, that firstborn is not a, a description indicating that Jesus had a starting point. We, he's eternal. He exists eternally. But that the firstborn is a title of privilege. A, a firstborn in a family received honor and a double portion, a double inheritance as the preeminent person of that family structure. Jesus is above, in other words, everything and everyone. Paul goes on three verses later. He says he is the head of the body, the church, universal, not local. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? It means that he is above everyone else in resurrection status. Why? Because he is the resurrection. That's what he says in John's gospel. We go into Romans. James read this a moment ago. Romans 8, 28 and 29. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called called out, right, according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The assembly of the firstborn, hear me, is the church of Jesus. (laughs) Whose names are written in the Lamb's Lamb's Book Book of Life. Life. And where are they all, where is this all happening, does Hebrews say? They are enrolled where? In heaven. In the heavenlies. It's all a reality in heaven. Listen, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you bow before him and confess that Jesus is Lord, the Father reveals Jesus to you, the Holy Spirit convinces you of this, you confess him, you are born again, you're granted salvation, you're you're given the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and you become a member in the church in heaven. And your name is written in In the lamp. Yeah, it's, it's etched in there forever. Good. This is amazing, isn't it? That's cool stuff. Now, now let's ask this. Folks, this is not surface stuff here. No. You're getting here. You don't get this just everywhere. No, we're getting theological here. This is good stuff. Now, who all belongs to this church? Who all belongs to this church? Number three, it includes all believers of all time. All believers of all time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air, so we will always be with him. Every person who has ever confessed Jesus Christ and been born again, those who are dead, those who are alive, we're all on the membership rolls. By the way, if you're a, if you're a, I don't believe in church membership person, you're going to wrestle with that in heaven. Because you're a member there. God's going to say, but wait, your name's right here on the church rolls. It's on the church rolls, y'all. Now that means, lastly, on that note with 1 Thessalonians in mind, number four, Christ is coming back for the universal church. Uh The trumpet sounds, Jesus comes to collect his bride, and his bride is not just sitting on a hill. It's every faithful, Bible-believing, Christ-centered... Whoa, (laughs) man. (laughs) 
I don't know. We, we're, a, we're a pretty good looking bunch. Yeah, yeah, look yeah, out there. Yeah, look, yeah, at this, yeah. look at this church. I don't know who you're looking at. He is coming back. <laughs> well, says the guy with one eye. I mean, come on. Hey, I'm more. I own more, it. I own it. I'm more qualified to speak I'll about this. So, so Christ is coming back for the universal church. Now, I want to come back for a moment and we'll close. We'll wrap up here. Actually, no, we've got, to, we've got to talk about the local church as well. We've got a little more. Hang with me. But I want to come back to the central idea here for a moment that James brought out in the very beginning, which is this, this, this idea that says, I love Jesus, but I just don't really love the church. Now, after unpacking just the universal portion of the church, can you understand how that is completely contradictory? That it's actually nonsensical when you think about it for two reasons. One, if you love Jesus, you love what he loves, Okay, you, you can't say that you love Jesus, but don't love the very bride that Jesus died for. Mm-hmm. But number two, you can't say you don't love the church because you're a member of it. <laughs> you're a pretty <laughs> crappy member of it if you don't love it, but you're a member of it. You might be a wayward member. Yeah, but you're on the roll, brother. You're on the roll. Now, now or the, maybe not. Or maybe not. Yeah. Now, now, here's the question. How do you participate in the universal church? Let me give you a truth. Participation in the universal church comes through participation in the local church. That's how you do it. That's how you operate in the universal, through participation in the local. So we'll we'll end here with the local church. Local church is central in the New Testament. Almost all of Paul's letters are very specific uh, to specific churches, and he identifies specific issues in each of them. So for example, on Wednesday nights, we're in a, uh, I'm teaching a class on spiritual gifts. We've been talking about several of them. One of them, a few weeks ago, we talked about was the gift of tongues, how it operated in the early church, what its purpose was. And if you, if you paid attention in that class, you might have noticed that I only read from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Anyone want to know why? Because that's the only place you find it in the New Testament, other than Acts, where there's something else completely going on there that's, that's different. But when you're talking about spiritual gifts, that's the only place you find it. Why? Because it was an issue in Corinth. And they'd messed it up. And they'd messed it up. So Paul had to teach them, hey, y'all are messing this whole thing up. You're making a mess of all the gifts. we got to talk about this. He didn't talk about it to Galatians. He didn't talk it to the, the, to the Philippians or to the Romans or to the Thessalonians or so on and so forth. It was an issue there. And that is true in every one of his letters. He's dealing with specific issues that they are combating, and he is helping them work through those things as an apostle. So the, the New Testament is very concerned with the local church. So that brings up the question then for you, why should you be involved in a local church? Why does this matter? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, they are of immense importance to Jesus and the apostles. So Jesus, uh, I quoted it earlier, Matthew 18, talking about sin. Ultimately, you rectify sin issues in the church. It happens there. Paul says the same thing. He gives instruction for church discipline. He gives, he gives instruction and qualifications for elders and leaders and overseers. He commands pastors to shepherd their own flocks. Beyond that, Paul loves the churches that he has planted. He tells them in almost every one of his letters, I desire dearly to come and see you in the flesh, in person. And that other dude says, I love Jesus, but I don't desire at all to see the church. Exactly. Paul's sentiment is exactly the opposite of that. Exactly the opposite of that. Number two, you can't live, this is an important one, you can't really live out the Christian life outside of the church. 
Now, I want you to really think about this for a minute. You cannot live out the Christian life outside of the church completely, okay? You will, you will fail in obedience in some ways. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, it's impossible to carry out the one another's of the New Testament. Bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, love one another, they serve one, one another, another, encourage, one, encourage another. one another. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't need to go to church for that. I've got Christian friends. I can do the one another's with them. Okay, well, try this one on for size. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. <laughs> I love this passage because he goes on. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We will have to give an account for you. And you'll have to give an account for us. That's exactly right. And check this out. This is what he says to you. This is, this is so good. Not my words, the Bible's words, all right? Write Jesus the letter. Submit to them with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, when, when, when you are um, uh, less than stellar in the way that you uh, operate here, it's of no advantage to you. It doesn't, it doesn't work out well for you. It only hacks people off. It's no good. He says, submit to your leaders with, with joy, with not much groaning. A little groaning, but not much groaning. <laughs> All right? Now, this is a, a command. It's in the imperative mood. That's a command of God. It's not a suggestion. It means if you're not doing this, you're not obeying God in this command. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Give me a high five for that. It's that's, time for a raise. That's us. That's us right there. How can you give double honor to your elders if you, have, if you have no elders? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. How, do, how do you do that if you're not, if you're not plugged in and, and, and under the submission of elders? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. How can they be over you if you're not under them? I mean, these are real questions. You cannot do this stuff if you're not committed in a local church. And I don't, listen, I don't just mean attending a local church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about membership. I'm talking about being plugged into the lifeline, to the blood of the church, okay? And let me just say about membership here for a moment, this isn't about a number to us, okay? We don't care about the numbers. It tells us who is in the fight and who is just here watching, observing. And if you are just here and that's all you're doing right now, that's great. Not everyone is ready to be all in. I understand that. I'm not mad about that. But you're not really in the fight, you're not in the fight until you submit yourself under the leadership of a church. Membership says, I want to be shepherded by you. I want to be under your leadership. I want to be held accountable for the way I obey or do not obey the scripture. Participating in the local church is not just coming here on Sunday morning and listening. It's not just going even to a Bible study and listening. It is saying, I'm all in. This I'm is my home. I'm, I'm on, on the team. team. Yes. I want to be held accountable. Put I want me to be in, held, coach. I want to be held to the same standards. Put me in. Yeah, you can trust me. You can trust me. You got to get this. The local church matters. It matters to Jesus. It mattered to the apostles. And without it, you cannot really live a life of obedience to all the scripture. You know, I love this picture that the New Testament paints. The, old, the universal church is that ethereal place where every time someone comes to Christ, their name is written yep. in that Lamb's Book of Life. How do they come to Christ? That is given to the local church to carry the gospel 
out into the world. So the local church is given the responsibility for the collection of the universal church. And there's so much more that, that we could say about this. And we this, will in this, the next few weeks. Well, and, and in particular, though, about what you're talking about. And I don't know that we will next week because it, it gets into a lot more. But, but there is so much in the Scripture about the connection between what is going on here on the earthly realm and what is happening in the heavenly realm. Mm. There's so many places where we see that. There's so, many, there's so many evidences in the New Testament that what you are doing here on earth has heavenly implications That's to right. it. That what you bind on earth, you bind in heaven. What you lose on earth, you lose in heaven. There are so many passages where we find that kind of thing happening, and there is a reason for it, because the moment you come to faith, you are in the heavenly role. Mm. You are on that book. So when the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. Okay. That was a really good, really good moment there. That was not in the notes. <laughs> You Not know, notes. if you keep practicing at this, you're going to make a decent preacher. I, you, I'm, you know, I learned from... from. No, no, you didn't learn anything. <laughs> you're figuring it out. I'm though. figuring it out. I am getting it. I am getting it. Listen, let me just leave you with this. Consider when you leave today mm-hmm. where you stand with the local church. Ask yourself an honest question. Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself the question, am I really all in here or, or, or am I just kind of in the mix a little bit? And that statement. I love Jesus, but I don't care for the church. Mm. In light of just what we've said today, that's foolishness. It is foolishness. But we're going to hit it harder after Mother's Day and come back again on this thing, and we're going to stack it up against that statement. I do want to say one last thing, and I, I didn't say this first service, and I think this is important you get to the, say to you. You get the good stuff because we have a deadline with the first yeah, service. Yeah, we do. There's exactly. no deadline. Yeah, you're, you're getting the, the premium material here. <laughs> I, I think this is important to say, especially to those of you who, who are here, that um, I love Jesus, but I just don't love the church has been a statement that I believe has become much more manifest post-COVID. Yep. And what I mean by that is before, you might have loved, loved Jesus and not really cared about the church, but maybe you came because it was kind of the, the pattern of your life. COVID broke those patterns for a lot of people. And we, we are sitting here, and we were talking about this this weekend with some of the elders at the Men's Crusade, that, that we are running right now on Sunday mornings roughly 50% capacity of what we were prior to COVID. But, but here's, here's the remarkable part. Our giving has not diminished almost at all. And ministry has increased. So what that says to me is that you are people who love Jesus and you do love the church, most of you, and you do show up. And you are here, despite the fear and despite the uncertainty that is out there in the world. And having said that, we do recognize there are people there that are waiting to come back. And they love the Lord, they love the church, and they're for health reasons, they're waiting. We understand that. he's talking about a different crowd of people. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who have just decided to go off. And and so it really does say to us, you are are in it, at least more than your average person. And, and so we appreciate that. We appreciate you. And I hope that you will continue to ask yourself that question. How can I be more in? Because you will find ultimate fulfillment in that. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we're just so grateful that you, you call the foolish and the broken, the dogs of the world, if you will. We rejoice in that, God, because we know that if you set the standard higher, I know for, for certain I, for one, would not be included in that that you cast your net to those of us mm-hmm. who are broken, who need a physician. Sure. And so we, we, we glorify you for that, and we, we rejoice in that. And we pray for, for more broken and lost people, that they also would be brought into the fold. Lord, we know that, that you know them by name, that you will call them, 
We just pray that we'd be the local expression that, that casts them in, brings them into the fold to see them grow in stature in your spirit. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for this church, this place of Amen. broken, imperfect people called to a perfect living God. We Amen. praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was thinking this week, somebody mentioned this to me. They love the preaching table. The preaching table. That's what, it, what, it, what they call it, the preaching table. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I've been teaching God's word as a senior pastor, as a pastor of a church for 40 years, and I have never had as much enjoyment and fulfillment of teaching God's word as I'm getting from the preaching table with Derek. Uh, this is, I've always loved to teach God's word, but it is so, I don't know, fulfilling it for is. me at the end of this tenure of my life and ministry to be able to do this with the next generation and to enjoy it. And just have some fun and well, not and, take ourselves so seriously. And just to razz each other a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I mean, you you know, know. And, and if he gets out of line, I just spank him. Exactly. You know? God bless you. Have a great week.